This is <clears throat> R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 360, April the 3rd, 1996. Douglas Murray, Paul Biddle, Mark Rushdoony, and I are going to discuss now the good life. I've taken the subject from the title of a book by Lauren Barrett's Wrote, written uh, in 1989, the subtitle of The Good Life is The Meaning of Success for the American Middle Class. Uh, the, the book, in a sense, is a jumping-off point. It's a fairly good book, and it does call attention to the decline in the character of the American middle class in this century. According to Barrett's, the first shock to the middle class came with the 1920s when uh, debt began to be a way of life. Americans plunged into debt in a reckless way, both in buying property and in the stock market, with very serious repercussions which led to the crash of 1929. Of course, with uh, the end of World War II, we went back to this debt economy in even a more intense way than the 1920s. At that time, you still had to pay a sizable down payment. As Barrett's points out in our history in the last century, a very high percentage of the cost of a property had to be paid down before you could buy it. And there were certain areas of life where you could only, or of uh, the country, where you could only uh, buy with uh, full payment. You had to pay 100%, no long-term or short-term loans. This still prevails in certain parts of the world. When uh, my brother and sister-in-law, who do missionary work in the Balkans, found that it was wiser to have a house in Greece than to uh, make a hotel or an apartment their base, that it would be cheaper in just a few years. They decided to build and found that they could only build with full cash payment. He sent over enough to build a summer place in terms of American uh, costs and found that he had a three-story home with five bedrooms built with reinforced concrete in terms of U.S. or California earthquake standards. It overlooks the Aegean Sea and in back is Mount Olympus. He couldn't believe what uh, his money bought him. And of course, it's because there is no property tax there and there is no interest to pay on a property. Well, <clears throat> debt 
was the first breaching of the Protestant uh, work ethic in this century. What it said was, you don't have to wait, you can get it all now. And this has been especially true since World War II. But since World War II, we've added another breaching of the Protestant ethic to the fact of debt. And that is in the area of sex. As Barrett points out, Playboy's world offered a single, simple message. Women and men are an eternal and overpowering heat. And they live truly only through their genitals. And those who pretend otherwise merrily play games designed to add fleeting and delicious preparatory tension to their inevitable surrender. The activating principle of life is female lust, promising every man relief from a groin in flames. Now American uh, boy men could fantasize about safe conquests by melting over Playboy's paper dolls they could call their own. The large breasts of this safe doll were displaced as her only erogenous equipment. She could never witness the boy man's flavor. And it goes on to speak of the vulgarity and the breakdown of everything and says that what Playboy hoped to do was to make lust respectable and that Kinsey, of course, worked to the same end. So the good life has come to mean affluence via debt and sexual license a la Playboy and Penthouse. And the net result has been the destruction of the Protestant work ethic, which was basic to the country, basic to the whole history of the United States. So the good life has taken on an entirely different meaning. I'd like to comment on something that Barrett's doesn't deal with here, but I've read a few books on the subject lately and I've forgotten their names. But we've had a revolution also in architecture. Older homes, good homes, comparable to the middle class homes today in value, were much larger. If you go into any part of the United States and look up the old neighborhoods, they are houses of two stories, many, many rooms, umpteen uh, bedrooms, sleeping porches in many cases, and the rooms are large. Earlier, there would be a small room near the front door, which was a family chapel. That has totally disappeared. But this was once a part of the American home because his faith and his family were basic to the American male and to his wife and children. The home reflected it in its architecture. 
But now it's radically different. It's merely functional. It's a place to eat and sleep and to watch television. I recall shortly after World War II uh, going to Southern California from northeastern Nevada, the Indian Reservation, to meet with some people. I did some speaking, as I recall it, and I uh, met with this magazine group for whom I had written one or two brief things. We went to the editor's home for a party. The home was a new and uh, expensive home, very, very modern. Except for the bathrooms, all the walls, interior walls, were movable. They could fold up into a wall so that you could have a party using all of the house except for the bathrooms. And it was regarded as the ultimate in... Uh, modern design. I couldn't help but think it was a nightmare because, uh, first of all, you'd never sleep uh, quietly in a home where anybody could push the wrong thing and the wall would disappear. (laughs) And second, because I did not like the idea of uh, home life, which shifted from family life to a party, endless partying. I'm glad it did not catch on, but basically the modern home is not for family living, and that too is a great loss because the good life is no longer seen as defined in terms of the faith and the family. Well, I was going to observe that uh, it seems to me that Playboy has succeeded beyond its wildest expectations because we've had a series of presidents (laughs) in the White House uh, whose lust uh, is no longer a detriment to their uh, presidential or their political ambitions. And uh, so uh, Playboy got the job done. But the... the, uh, the middle class, I remember in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I lived for many years before I moved up here, uh, I remember what you're saying. I think it was the Eichler homes where there were no partitions, and they had high vaulted beam ceilings, and there were no, you know, it was one great big room in the place, and all glass. I mean, you're, you're like, it was like living in a fishbowl. You know, it was glass all the way around. And... Uh, I guess the neighbors, if, uh, it was before, it was about the time television was coming in. I guess they figured that people just sit around and watch each other or something. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, there are a lot of well-recognized uh, factors that have gone into diminution of the good life of the middle class, but uh, certainly inflation is one of them. Uh, the pace of life where people simply can't enjoy food, uh, the advent of fast food and restaurants is simply a symptom of the fact that we no longer have time to enjoy good food. We don't take the time to enjoy good food. And as a result, uh, there are uh, a few people who 
devote themselves to to the preparation of food as a pastime but where whereas it used to be a standard family activity where you know hours or sometimes days were spent in preparation for a particular meal food for a particular meal people just don't do that anymore the the time isn't there the will isn't there and in many cases the the economic wherewithal is not there so one of the simple pleasures of life has virtually disappeared well speaking of the good life I I like Dorothy's description of how we may get back to a cow and a milk pail because I always look for these quality things in our foods and I think for the American people the good life you speak of housing I think the American people have suffered in terms of the foods they eat especially we don't have the flavors we don't have the colors we don't have the variety I mean you speak in terms of fruit trees or vegetables or anything else and our quality of life or the good life is something we almost cannot reach anymore because no one's providing it and perhaps we don't have a long enough memory to understand that those things once did exist and provided us a lot of satisfaction but no I think the good life is choice and if you don't have choice and you don't have moderation so you can have a scope of choice you end up not having a good life I mean I think no one can say that sex is wrong or that it's not enjoyable but too much sex is just like too much of anything it's not good for you and I think that maybe during I don't know when Hefner came in his daughter's now running Playboy I guess but we've we've had too much of this and that and whatever and too little of some of the things that we really really do need and really enjoy but that good life is starting to evade us he's proven that you can wear yourself out I think entertainment media has had a big effect on redefining people's concept of the good life people especially young people who are very impressionable see things in movies they see things on television and even though they know it's not real they get these subtle assumptions about what is desirable and what is not desirable and so that's why I think young people increasingly over the last half century have been kind of casting their line in all kinds of different directions and some of them quite absurd and counterproductive and even destructive because they see things idolized in movies on television they see lifestyles or ambitions that are really rather foolish and I think that began probably very early because well California became a desirable place through the movies and I think it's from the early days movies have had quite an impact on people and their public perception they still do have a perception of how people perceive the United States because of what we export in the form of our movies so even though we know it's not real 
it affects us. And I found a lot of students, a lot of their ideas of history comes from uh, their impression of what they've seen in a movie, on television, and they don't even realize it. Their idea of Puritans are what they've seen on television. Their idea of Abraham Lincoln is what they see uh, in a portrayal. Uh, their perception of World War II is what they've seen in old war movies and on and on and on. And, and people's perception of what is desirable, what the real world is like, has been, has been largely molded uh, by entertainment media in this century. It's extremely powerful. Uh, I remember he was at Newton Mineral or something observed that this was back in the, in the late 60s, I guess, that the average kid had over 3,000 hours of television watching in before he hit the fifth grade. And that's got to have a powerful influence, more so than the parents. And then when the kids uh, are able to read, what do they read? They don't read the Bible. <clears throat> they don't know what God's prescription for a good life is. Television becomes their Bible. The, the <clears throat> pop culture becomes their our Bible. It defines what the good life is for them. What, are, what other source of information do they have? It really creates pop culture <clears throat> to a large extent. You know, what other, what other source of information do they have? I mean, they're, they're starved for information, first of all, and then they're fed garbage. Their hunger is fed with garbage. Well, may I ask a question? That is the good life contentment, which would be television watching, or is it fulfillment? Well, it has to be fulfillment. I think so. Nobody's ever content. I, I mean, well, human, I think, I think human beings don't, don't know what contentment is. I, I think we do have some sort of contentment. Like, you know, people spend a lot of time in front of TVs, and they're contented being entertained. They're contented with this little box that interacts with them in a very uh, active fashion, so to speak. I mean, they can sit there passive and just let it all come into them. Well, yeah, but you know, the key word here is it's passive entertainment. They're really not. It's not you know, we haven't gotten to interactive yet. I mean, it exists technologically, but for the great majority of the mass audience out there, interactive TV hasn't hit the shores yet. So that's the reason we have. You know, kids are are uh, the way they are. You know, they. They don't interact. Yeah. Well, I think this contentment thing is very important. Remember in Clockwork Orange? I didn't see it. The, they take the people who are the uh, disappointments of your culture, so to speak, mm -hmm. and they give them these little balls, like beach balls, to hold on to, and it puts off a vibration that makes them contented, where they don't bother you. Like a purring cat? Like a purring cat. <laughs> oh, we shouldn't say that to the cat lovers. <laughs> like, boy, I'll say, but... Contentment and fulfillment mm -hmm. are two different things. And I think Christians seek fulfillment. Mm -hmm. But I think there are many people that are very satisfied with contentment. That's because they're lazy. Possibly so. But I, I think H Humans are very easily corrupted. You know, right. that, television is a marvelous corrupting influence. I mean, it just it appeals to your instinct to take the path of least resistance so the, in life. The good life is not having... Yeah. A Sony 32-inch television. Mm -hmm. The good life is not having uh, an ability to kick back in your rocker and not have to do anything. Those are contentment type. Yeah, well, look, but I think good life is fulfillment. I, I would vote for television that. has now become the path of least resist resistance to knowledge. 
And, th and that's the reason that there's so much control. The government has so much control. They can say what knowledge is. They can dispense it in any form they wish. Uh, you know, we, we've got pornography on television now that would have been un unthinkable 30 yes. years ago. Yeah. But the government defines, the courts define, uh, the media defines, the, the entertainment industry defines uh, by what's seen on television. It's become all-powerful. You know, I'm thinking of, of fulfillment with Mark. Like, I think Mark has a good life. I really do believe that's mm -hmm. what I observe. I don't know, you haven't told me that, but I think you have a good life. But I was thinking about your 4-H efforts with the kids mm -hmm. and doing the sheep. Uh, that requires effort, mm -hmm. but it gives you fulfillment. Not contentment, mm -hmm. but fulfillment. And that is good life for you. And I, I think it has the same thing to do with uh, each of us has this thing that if we find fulfillment, we'd have a good life. Mm -hmm. If we find contentment, we don't necessarily have good life. And all the things that we acquire, the physical possessions we acquire, mm -hmm. for the most part, give us contentment and not the fulfillment aspect. Well, how many times have we met people with enormous amounts of money who are the most miserable people on the face of the earth? I mean, they themselves are not far from being... Uh, content or fulfilled. They may have fulfilled their wishes as far as uh, wealth is concerned, but they're terribly, you know, their lives are just a shambles. Last night I was reading Ecclesiastes, you know, and that whole darn thing in Ecclesiastes, I think there's a lot to be said for fulfillment and contentment, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I think fulfillment is, is the big thing in, mm -hmm. in the good life. Mm -hmm. One of the things <clears throat> we need to consider now is the fact that uh, in this country we represented the good life for generations to the world because here you could be free and you could worship as you wished so that we were a magnet to the world 20 million people migrated to the United States by 1900. It has been called the largest population transfer in history. There was a very, very great outpouring of immigration because of the upsets of World War One, so that the number from 1900 to 1920 approximately was very, very great. Now these people came here at a great cost. It meant uprooting themselves. It meant accumulating the money or being staked to it by their family and relatives. And they came here because they were ready to work. It used to be that uh, in New York, the pay at the beginning of this century for immigrants was 8 to $14 a week. And that was the high pay area. It was half that in Boston, where a lot of immigrants landed as well. The interesting fact is that those immigrants 
did not stay in the poor neighborhoods very long. In New York, it was about six or seven years and they moved upward because every member of the family that could get a job worked. They were out to improve themselves. And the result was this work ethic was potent. They brought it with them. Now, it is uh, important to realize that in those days you could not land and go on welfare as they do today. <laughs> you were immediately deported. If at any time, because of illness or anything, you applied for welfare, you could not. So these were people with a work ethic. Now the interesting thing is, Barrett's and other writers who've dealt with the subject of immigration have said that the congestion, the uh, number of people in a square block or in a single dwelling on the Lower East Side was worse than in Bombay. And Bombay is often held up as the example of how low people can be, how poorly they can be housed and cared for. But it was worse in New York on the Lower East Side. But those people were out of there very quickly. It was a temporary place. And uh, the Orthodox Jews who landed there made Bombay look uh, like a blissful place in terms of congestion because they brought in all their friends and relatives, sent for them as fast as they could, piled them into rooms, and as quickly as possible moved upward. This, to them, was opportunity. The good life was going to come by working because they were going to have freedom for themselves and freedom for their faith. And now that no longer defines the good life for all too many people in this country. Well, the good life has become redefined as self-indulgence. Yes. Uh, you know, many people used to find contentment in work. Mm -hmm. uh, artisans would find contentment in doing a particular job. Now they're looked upon as oddities, guys that make oak barrels and people who make oak furniture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are certain almost lost trades, wheelwrights and so forth. There's a fellow down here in uh, Farmington that uh, restores uh, old uh, horse-drawn uh, carriages and uh, stagecoaches and so forth. There are lots of Mennonites in the area. Yeah, well, I don't think he's a Mennonite, but, I mean, he's he's probably one of the last living wheelwrights in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, Wells Fargo sends that stagecoach. Uh, they've got three or four of those stagecoaches down there, and they send them down to him to be overhauled every now and then. And, uh, I mean, to look at the guy, you wouldn't think he had very much money. Uh, it, it seems to me, you know, in the facilities that he works in and the way he walks around in the car he drives it, he just he does it because he likes to do it, and there, fulfillment that there. gives him that gives him fulfillment. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remember vividly 
from my boyhood days, which is going back 70, 75 years, was the fact that uh, men like blacksmiths who had uh, craft and a knowledge if you went by a shop where anyone like that was working, there would always be men who were passing by who would stop and watch him work with respect and admiration because uh, what he was doing was difficult work. It was knowledgeable work. A blacksmith did more than shoe horses. He was... Uh, a skilled worker in his craft. And there was respect for him. Of course, it goes back to the fact that uh, in Longfellow's day, uh, going back 170, 75 years, he wrote a poem expressing that, the poem about the village blacksmith, which in my day you memorized. Dorothy probably could recite it. I can't. One of the most popular displays over here at Columbia, this uh, restored yes. town, the most popular display in the whole place. You go over there on a Saturday or, and uh, walk around the place, there's more people standing outside the blacksmith shop because they've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, there were only half a dozen blacksmiths in the United States. Now there are a couple of hundred. I'd like to quote Irving Howe, who came from an immigrant family, and he said, Our parents clung to family life as if that was their one certainty. This is how important families were. Now, a very important aspect of the world of the 20s and 30s was the immigrant family. We don't realize that because of the tremendous uh, upheavals of World War I, a great many people had to leave Europe, had to leave the Middle East. Armenians, the massacres, many people fleeing communism in Eastern Europe, many others fleeing for one reason or another the oppression that rose in various parts of Europe and the Middle East. These people came over and together with their children, by 1930, they were one-third the white population of the United States. Their devotion to family life was intense. Irving Howe, to repeat his words, our parents clung to family life as if that was their one certainty. Well, what this did was to revive the basic character of this country because family life had been basic to 19th century America. Now the immigrants revived it. We face a situation today when we have problems from every direction. 
first, the third and fourth generations do not regard family life as important. They have been so thoroughly uh, affected by public education that their standards are neither familistic nor biblical. Then you have the sexual revolution and its impact so that the good life is no longer what it was to Americans over the generations. The immigrants at that time reinforced what had been the American tradition of faith and family. But since World War II, our immigrants come over here and go on welfare. We have a great many illegal ones. We have a population of, what is it, 30,000 uh, who are criminals, I believe, in California. These are illegal aliens. And across country, the illegal aliens represent a criminal element. The legal ones too often are ready to go on welfare as soon as they come. We all know here of uh, one family that came over and before their first day was over, they had applied for welfare. This is commonplace now. It was once illegal. So this has led to a redefinition of the good life in this country. It is now an entitlement idea. I'm entitled to this or that. I'm entitled to live well or to have what I want. Well, that's uh, that's the new contentment is to uh, get money and not have to work for it. Yes. And as long as the government hands it out, uh, people being as easily corrupted as they are, <laughs> they go for it hook, line, and sinker. You mentioned the sexual revolution. I think that was, you know, it was sold as a revolution, but it was really was a devolution. Yes. Uh, it took us down. Uh, the disrespect uh, for life, uh, the Supreme Court decision in 1973, uh, Roe v. Wade, it, uh, all those things took us down. Uh, the lack of... Uh, Respect for God's law has evolved into a lack of respect for life and lack, lack of respect for uh, for oneself. Uh, higher rates of suicide, uh, disintegration of family. Uh, now you have parents killing their children, either in the womb or after they're born. Uh, I mean, it's a da- becoming a daily occurrence on the news. People are becoming less and less surprised less and less shocked. I mean, we're turning into a bunch of cannibals. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, uh, consuming our young. Any species uh, on the planet that kills its young eventually has to become extinct. I mean, they, it's a numbers game. You can't uh, destroy your offspring without destroying your yourself and your uh, your species. Uh, it's amazing that people haven't figured this out. 
you know, that if you suffer from lack of fulfillment or contentment, the Bible is the greatest handbook for living that there is. You know, if there's anybody out there that's confused about what to do and can't find instructions, when all else fails, read the instruction book. You know, it's like the, the uh, you buy a new appliance or... Uh, Something and you can't get it to work. You know, if you if you can't get your life to work, there is a handbook out there. Everybody uh, ignores the instruction book, but uh, when all else fails, if you hit the wall, pick it up and give it a try. Well, we are in the midst of uh, revolution or devolution. But it is suicidal. It has no future. I believe the tide is already turning against it. The fact that the Christian school and homeschool movements have grown so phenomenally is an indication that uh, there's a different future ahead. And uh, the growth has indeed been sensational. Mark and I were at the homeschool conference a week ago Saturday. It was for Northern California, held in the Civic Auditorium, and uh, they filled it. It was uh, very interesting because these people are doing something that is not easy to do. It takes a lot of time. And they're doing a remarkably good job of educating their children. Well, those children and the Christian school children are going to be the leaders of the future. And they represent a real revolution. It was interesting that the... uh, attorney for the homeschool movement, the main man, Michael Ferris, a very superior man who was there, was himself evidence of a change coming. As he said, he was born in Arkansas and grew up in Washington State, went to the university there, had uh, the credentials of a liberal and wrote a paper and won a prize for it as a student on overpopulation and what a problem it was. And he said, you can see how much I have shifted in my position when you know that I have nine children now. (laughs) Well, this is what is happening. We are the future, and that's why they are afraid of us and hate us. Rush, you, know, you, you speak about this good life, and you speak in terms of when you were a young fellow and so on. Some of the kids today that are into these tattoos, safety pins through their nose, uh, piercing this, piercing that, uh, the the proliferation of casual drug use, mm-hmm. what is going to be the good life for these people? Are they going to have a good life? No, the Bible says all they that hate me love death. The amount of suicide among young people today is growing. The number of young people in their teens and twenties 
who say uh, say they have no reason for living is growing. At the same time that these people are wiping themselves out, another element, a Christian group, is taking over increasingly. So we are in difficult times, but it's a time of transition. The new definition of good li- the good life is a definition of suicide, basically. Debt is a form of slavery and of death. And the sexual revolution is culminating in abortion, AIDS, homosexuality, and the enlightened people of our time are for euthanasia. So Dr. Death, Dr. Kevorkian, is a hero to them. The whole scene is one of an exaltation of the will to death. And God is going to give them their wish. Yeah, the New York uh, Supreme, I guess it was, the New York Supreme Court just uh, ruled that uh, doctor-assisted suicide's okay. And uh, the medical, they were, uh, they were interviewing a, a woman, a woman who was the uh, president of the American Medical Association, and uh, they're not comfortable with that. Well, not, not for the right reasons. <laughs> in the Netherlands, elderly people are afraid to go to a hospital because without their consent, they can be put to death. Mm-hmm. And that situation, while not legal, is, I am told, taking place. Sure. Well, they're, you know, they, they say, well, the safeguard is, is that the, uh, the patient has to be, uh, intellectually capable of making this decision. Well, how many people who are, you know, terminally ill or seriously ill, uh, you know, are really at the top of their game and, uh, uh, the pressures for that the hospital and their so-called ethics committee place on their medical staff to uh, rid themselves of a uh, sometimes an enormous financial liability can be pretty overwhelming. And, uh, you know, you have to believe that under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, uh, a bad decision is going to be made. So, you know, every time man elects himself God, you know, he gets himself into deeper water than he can swim in. For, you know, bringing God into the good life, and I'll pose a question to Mark, I'd like to hear him speak to. But as a parent, the good life is having your kids turn out in a way that you're happy and you're fulfilled by. Mm-hmm. You're seeing children adopt values that you think will serve them well in life. And I know with my son, when he went to school at the Christian school at St. Paul's Canterbury in Los Altos with mm-hmm. the, Mr. Milbank's uh, oversight, he turned out to be a beautiful child. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was involved with the church, involved with a religion, involved with learning in a Christian context. And it turned out a different product. Mm-hmm. Other people, I think, who don't have that going for them, they sometimes suffer and do not have as good a life as they might not. Mark, you, mm-hmm. you are in 
not only in education, but you have some great kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of it. And turning out kids that are that you're really happy with, you're fulfilled by. Children are the greatest indicators in the world. You know, they don't they don't uh, very often hide their feelings. You go by a public school and you see all of these sullen zombies walking yes. around, and and you you go look at kids in a Christian school and they're so much laughing and their their faces are just lit up in joy. They're having a good time doing what they're doing. Uh, the difference is stark. I mean, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. Yes, it's very depressing to go by a public school during lunch hour and see them walking the streets. They are a scruffy-looking lot. Pagan zombies. And, and Yes, pagan <laughs> zombies is an excellent term for them. And they they're and they look miserable. It shows. Yes. They are miserable. You talk to them, and you know they haven't got anything good to say about their lives whatsoever. Nothing. There's no fulfillment. There's no contentment. They're continually uh, agitating, rebelling against authority, rebelling against God, rebelling against society, rebelling against their parents. I mean, how can you achieve fulfillment or contentment under those conditions? It's impossible. I, they weren't born with this. It, it's a learned behavior. Our culture teaches this behavior. So, you know, the culture needs to be reformed. Rush, you're a grandfather. Yeah. What has been the good life for you now? Speak in terms of, of something personal for you. It has been the ability to serve God and to have children and grandchildren who love the Lord. It's been a joy. And I hope not too long a time will pass before I have great-grandchildren. The first of my granddaughters is already married. I'd like to go back to Barris's Good Life book. And what he says on page 300 following, Philip Reef, the University of Pennsylvania sociologist, showed how the Western world had slowly liberated itself from religious culture, the organization of thought by faith, acceptance of mystery, invention of music and architecture to glorify God, and the rationalization of social institutions such as the patriarchal family, to reflect its God-centeredness. This ascetic culture, rich in symbols and nuance, based on conscience and guilt, thou shalt not, was overthrown in favor of a psychological culture, symbolically impoverished and vulgar, based on intelligence, leading to a desire to feel good, and composed of members who believed they had passed into a world that seemed not to have evolved from their own childhoods, new people in a new world, free to worship each in his own closet, liberated from emotional bonds, emancipated from love. In this new irreducible church of solitary worship, impulse replaced prayer. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man is born to be pleased, as Reef wrote. 
Then he continues a little later. Even Nietzsche, our great thundering prophet of expressiveness, occasionally peered over the brink and recoiled. But the free Americans demanded everything. They insisted on the release of the isolated self, which in the 60s was called doing your own thing and which existentialists described as authenticity and by post-ascetic Americans characteristically in a command, get out of my way. A 25-year-old bicyclist ran over and killed an 86-year-old woman because, he said in justification, she got in my way. Mm-hmm. So that's what the good life has become. And it is killing off the people who work for it. So we are the people of the future. Well, it seems like Christians are the only people left on this planet with any hope. Everyone else uh, seems to be running on the arrogance of electing themselves God. And we're growing in numbers. I've cited often the figure given of an average of 300 Christians killed for their faith every day somewhere in the world. But about double that number newly converted every day. Well, there's lots of people out there that just can't stand to see anybody having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess you have to hang in there. Yes. The good life is a life only open to Christians in the final analysis. Everybody else is trying to replace the quality of life with things, having possessions, accumulating as much as they can accumulate. When I was young, there was a saying which is still known, but not considered as seriously as then. You can't take it with you. There was no Brinks armored car following Howard Hughes to the graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think we can do, Rush, with our children to encourage them to seek out a good life consistent with our understandings of a good life? First, we have to set the right example. Then, second, it requires teaching and more teaching and then more teaching. Nothing else can replace it. One of the things that uh, has happened between my generation and the present one is the emphasis on doing things with your children. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when you realize that for a long time uh, fathers didn't have the time for that, they didn't work eight hours a day Uh, Dorothy's father worked at first 
14 hours, seven days a week. And uh, only towards the end of his life was there an eight-hour day. Now, how much could you do with your family? Well, surprising how much they could do and did do. They set an example. They were the law. They led the family in worship. They took the family to church if they were home. But they made clear there was a standard. Now, that was the great contribution they made, and that's the contribution that is missing today. I know uh, how shocked I was when I was young. I really shocked and uh, embarrassed when I heard some of the wilder kids, I'm talking, going back to the 20s, talk about my old man. <laughs> that seemed so disrespectful to most of us. And it just shocked us every time we heard it. But that kind of disrespect kids pick up, even good kids nowadays. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they don't stand in any position of respectful awe of their parents and their father in particular. That's the biggest single change, I think, within the family that I've seen since my childhood. And... There's uh, been two... I was just going to say there's been too much of an effort since the 1950s to create a buddy-buddy relationship yes. and destroy the respect uh, that should be there. You know, there's a, there's a bridge, but there's also a separation. Yes. Uh, and the separation is one of respect, but, you know, you have to maintain this bridge with dignity. And in the recent generations, that, that uh, dignity between the generations has been destroyed. Well, even when I was in high school, I could remember the saying by some of the kids, big, strong farm boys, you know, uh, 190, 210 pounds, six foot, six foot one. And they would shake their heads over what some of the town boys would say casually about their fathers, you know, not expressing hatred, just disrespect. And their attitude was, if I said that, I'd pick to my dad, I'd pick myself up in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've had a lot of contact with my son, Rush, because we see him about every two weeks. But Doug's emphasis on dignity between a, a father mm-hmm. and a son, I think, is a very key part of it. Yes. But I, I think back when I was little, I used to always love to do things with my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was doing something, he said, go get the screwdriver. Oh, I really wanted to go get that screwdriver for mm-hmm. him. Or if we were working in the garden, and he'd say, bring the hose over here. Oh, that was my job. I went to mm-hmm. get the hose. I think too often now, 
fathers hesitate to involve their kids in what they do. They don't, my dad used to take me with him when he was working and things like mm-hmm. that. And that, that closeness of a father and son is very beautiful. This goes back a long ways, I mean, to, to biblical times. Yes. Uh, it's how kids learn. Uh, they learn uh, practical, practical knowledge by observation. And that ability to be with their father when their father is working is, uh, is a very key element in their education. Well, our culture, films, television, all the kids and the neighborhood have worked to destroy that old position of respect, of patriarchal authority. And our culture is suffering from it. And it's leading to a barbarization of the young. More and more of the marks of a barbarian mark the young. We are seeing it in every field. We see it in music. The amount of good music that was current when I was a boy, whether in school or in society, was remarkable. On radio and even into the 60s, still on television, symphonic music or folk music from different cultures. But now the music is of the most debased variety. And television has been a corrupting force. Well, music has been a, uh, another devolution. Yes. To see who can get to the bottom first and still make money. Well, all you have to do is to recall the Boston Pops Orchestra mm-hmm. under Arthur Fiedler. They played good music. Mm-hmm. But now, uh, most of what you get from the Boston Pops, uh, you can get without a symphony orchestra. It's just uh, 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 wretched stuff. Very popular, very, very uh, weak musically. Uh, it's very sad what has happened there. Well, every... Uh, marketing effort now uh, takes advantage of the common denominator of marketing to 12-year-olds because they're just reaching puberty. And they feel that if they can capture them at that point, they have a lifelong customer. Uh, You know, they've just reached the age of reason, supposedly, when they're beginning to pull away from parental authority. And they feel that that if they can catch them at that point, uh, they uh, they have a lifelong customer, so the uh, uh, maintaining parental control through that period is very important. But you can't do it without respect. Well, our time is almost up. I think one thing that has contributed to the barbarization of language among young people is the lack of teaching of poetry. Time's up now. Thank you and good night.